Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, I'm Sean Callahan, And I'm Mark Shank. And uh, before we get started with today's story, uh, I've just come back from the US where one of the things that we did was we exhibited at the ATD conference in San Diego, the Association for Talent Development Conference. I got to see Barack Obama do the Monday morning keynote and we were exhibiting in the expo hall. I had conversations with hundreds of people and uh, so it was a really cool event. So tell me though, what was uh, Barack Obama like? Well, he was good. There was one very memorable story that he told yes um, and there were many other that sort of got nearly to being stories but weren't quite but i must say that regardless it was pretty much anything he said the crowd was going crazy were they oh yeah it was the crowd <laughs> going off um so he's got uh, kind of he's got the pulling status. power yes oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was I was there with uh, with the, like fifteen thousand of my closest friends that morning. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so I had con- hundreds of conversations uh, during the course of those three days that we were exhibiting, and one of the things that I noticed was so many people came up to me and said, "Oh, storytelling! Yeah, we totally need storytelling in our organisation." It was like they were thinking that storytelling was an outcome. Oh yes, we'll just get storytelling to sprinkle on a bit of storytelling. Yeah, exactly. A condiment. Yes. And, uh, I, kept pointing out to them that like storytelling in business, it's not an outcome. It's a tool to achieve business outcomes. And of course, that's one of the things that we focus on is this view that story is not an outcome. It's simply a device, a tool. And if you know how to use it, you can get better outcomes. So I was very uh, interested to note that view that story is, uh, is an outcome is still pretty prevalent. And look, one of the other things I noticed was that uh, a number of people came up to me after there were several people talking about storytelling. And after one of the presentations, somebody came up to me and said, oh, I just attended a storytelling presentation. And they'd shown some of our stuff uh, in their presentation with full attribution, yes. which was fantastic. Fantastic. But their observation was this lady gave an entire hour presentation on storytelling and didn't tell a single story. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess that's a bit of a pattern that we've seen though. It uh, is. Yeah. People love that word story. Oh, yeah. Oh, one other thing that was quite interesting that also highlights a bit of a challenge in the world of storytelling. A lady pulled out her resume and handed it to me and said, Mark, here's my story. And of course, I pointed to what I said, actually, that's a resume. That's a piece of paper with information on it. That's not a story. Right. And so it's another barrier, I guess, to the take-up of stories that this habit where we've got of pointing to something and calling it a story actually makes it a story. That's it. That's it. And people get quite... They really push back when you sort of say, well, it's it's information, it's a point of view, it's it's not really a story. But they, but they go, no, this is my story. <laughs> right. They, they get really, um, you know, sort of put out by any sort of pushback. So it's an interesting one. But you can't get that benefit of storytelling unless you're actually telling it a story, right? It's kind of makes sense. Yeah. I know it sounds like it's, it's kind of an, an inane thing to say, but it is just a fundamental truth. Yeah. Stories are powerful. But you need to be telling stories to now, tap into that. We have some events coming up, right? And I thought I'd just let everyone know about a couple of public workshops. We don't often do public workshops in Australia, but we seem to have done a few more than normal this year. So coming up, we have a workshop, I think it's on the 11th of June in Brisbane, right? Mark's running that up in in Brisbane. So uh, if you want to attend any of our public workshops, the best thing is just go to our website, anecdote.com, and go to the events page, and you'll actually see all the events that are sort of happening. But so you got the Brisbane one, but there's also a Sydney and Melbourne one. So, and then of course, we're heading overseas and doing some others uh, overseas. And so you'll sort of see that on the events page as well. So. Yes. Yeah, so stand by for one in Madrid in September. Madrid, yes. Yeah, so for our uh, Spanish uh, listeners, hang out for that. Now, so this week's story. Today's story is really about this idea how small things can make a big difference. 
right? It happens back in the 1930s. In fact, it's in 1935, 30th of uh, October, 1935. And it's a competition between two big aircraft corporations of the day. So you've got Boeing and then you've got Martin and Douglas. You know, they're vying to win a big defence contract, actually, for the US Army Air Corps. And uh, it was for to pick the next long-range bomber, if you like. And Boeing was way ahead. You know, its aircraft was regarded as just so advanced by comparison to what uh, Martin and Douglas have uh, had, had available. Uh, it was called the, the Model 299. And among other things, it could carry five times the amount of bombs than any other aircraft wow. out there, right? It could go twice as far as the other bomber that was out there. And not only that, it could do us twice as fast, right? So, you know, like you're, you're way out in terms of... That's a winner, basically. That's a winner, right? And it was sort of like a, a lay down in the The army was going to order 65 of these. So, um, you know, this is a big contract back then. Anyway, on the day, the army brass get together on the, you know, the airfield watching this beautifully slick aluminium shiny aircraft uh, sort of taxi down the runway as it's sort of getting ready to take off you know the the propellers are firing up you've got this beautiful you know sleek silver aircraft sitting on the runway ready to go it fires up it takes off down that runway and with this steep angle takes off 300 foot into the air it's looked like it's going beautifully all of a sudden the whole thing stalls one of the wings just dips to the to the left and it comes crashing down straight into the nose absolute massive explosion kills two of the crewmen uh, on the flight and everyone's stunned right and on that day when it happened you know they couldn't believe it because they had the very best test pilot in the u.s army flying this thing right it was a guy called major ployer hill Ployer, interesting name. Isn't it is, it? yeah. Obviously, a very popular name back in the in back in the thirties. But Ployer, Major Ployer Hill was, you know, he was the most experienced, most capable guy. Like you know, any of these things, they do an investigation, and when they went through and did the investigation, it was human error that was where they point the problems. Uh, it turned out that these extra capabilities, these avionics, you know, now the four engines, you've got to mix the fuel and, and the oil for each engine separately. And, you know, there's a whole range of extra things he had to do that he had forgotten to release a new locking mechanism they'd put in there. Didn't unlock the sort of the rudders and the, and the elevators that they had sort of built into the wings, right? And the tail. So... After this investigation report came out, people were just sort of saying, well, the 299 was deemed too, you know, too difficult for one man to fly. Right? It was impossible. Now, on the day, Douglas won the bid. Their planes got picked up, and that was another part of the story, I guess. But the, for Boeing, they almost went bankrupt as a result of that. Well, their reputation would have been in tatters after Ooh, that. You can just imagine it, can't you? But, you know, the Army did purchase a handful of those 299s because they thought, okay, let's do some testing, let's sort of see what we can learn. And there was a group of sort of insiders, you know, some you know true believers, if you like. They thought, this sort of aircraft has got legs in some ways. Let's see what we can do to see how we can fly this thing. And so they got a bunch of test pilots together and they, they sort of worked out what they were going to do. And what was it? one of the interesting things about it was that they knew just doing more training wasn't going to be the thing. That, you know, Ployer Hill was, you know, one of the very he best. He was the best. Yeah, so no one else was going to come along and be trained better. So they sort of said, okay, what can we do, which is a simple solution? And they came up with the idea of a basic checklist. 
It's as you simple know, flaps as that. 30, unlock the rudder lock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. And, and you know, the, the idea was they're going to put it on one index card, you know, it was the checklist for takeoff, the checklist for landing, you know, a few other things like that, emergency situations. And here's the thing. The 299 ended up going, uh, flying 1.8 million miles once they got this up and running with the checklist without a single incident, right? And the army ended up ordering 13,000 of these suckers. It became massive. For so they, Boeing's, uh, they were back in the red. They were back in the, you know, oh, back, back in, in the, the black. black, I should say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> back in the black. Now, this thing, we probably all know the name of this uh, aircraft, or at least it rings some bells. It was called the, uh, the B-17 Bomber. Some people called it the Flying Fortress, right? And it became, really, for the US, a, a decisive advantage that they had in the air in World War Two. Yeah, so being in the Air Force, yeah, so the B-17, its long-range capabilities, its bomb-carrying capacity, combined with the P-51 Mustang fighter aircraft, yes. were able to maintain air superiority over Europe and the Pacific and were a dominant factor in winning World War Two. Yeah, so wow. See, and all down to the simple idea of a checklist, right? Which, of course, is standard procedure for every aircraft, whether it's a one-engine or a A380. Exactly. Yeah, they run on checklists. They run on checklists. So anyway, that's really the story. You know, I think it's amazing that some industries use checklists quite regularly as a simple thing, but other industries just don't feel like that they want to do that. I know that this, this story, by the way, came from uh, Atul Gawande's uh, terrific book called The Checklist Manifesto. And he's making the argument in his industry, which is the health industry, he's doing things to try to get checklists adopted into hospitals, into you know, other complex environments where if you can just follow a few basic things to make sure everything's done, he's shown it had an amazing impact in those sort of spaces as well. So, wow, that's a cool story. Tell me. What do you reckon then, Mark, in terms of that story? What, what are some of the things for you that, you know, that stood out that make that story work? Well, I guess for me, it was the disaster and recovery. So on the one hand, you've got the high expectations, which suddenly come crashing down. Literally? <laughs> Literally. Yes. The, the fact that Boeing nearly went out of business. But then through the efforts of some people who believed they came up with a solution. Yeah, some nice bits like that, isn't there? So, you know, you can tell that there's big stakes involved, right? You know, the life and death of companies. Um, you know, obviously, there'd be big dollars involved when you're talking about that many aircraft over a period of time. So this, you can clearly see the stakes in, you know, the stakes at risk in the story, right? So oh, I think definitely. part of it. A number of twists and turns. Yes. Now, I think one of the other elements which you know, add to any story is that I guess it's the disaster element, the fact that you've got literally death occurring, you know, fire explosions on the on the runway. I mean, these sort of things are the... For humans, we're just totally drawn to it. We, you know, we can picture it and it's it's something that's memorable for us, right? Because we want to avoid death. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty handy. That, pretty yeah. handy thing to do. Uh, so I think that's an element as well. And of course, I think we might have already mentioned it, the high stakes, the fact that this is, has a huge impact yeah. for Boeing and the eventual impact, which was on the, the B-17's contribution uh, to World War II. I kind of like that idea that, you know, such a small thing can have that great ripple effect, you know, in, in the world. So, uh, 
yeah, I think that's a nice message as well. Yeah, and and of course some of the imagery, uh, you know, the aircraft roaring down the runway, you know, taking off steeply, and uh, of course then the unfortunate imagery of the aircraft stalling. And for any of you that are jumping on an aircraft soon, you want to try and wipe that from your mind, if you're, especially if you're a nervous traveller. Now, for those uh, listening at home, uh, you might want to know too. Is as as I was telling my aircraft story, Mark with a you know, an Air Force background, was grimacing many times <laughs> as I got the terminology slightly wrong, quite wrong actually in some cases. But see, uh, but this is the thing. I think there is, um, you need to get it mostly right, don't you? I think there was a bunch of things I stumbled over in terms of, I was coming up with these elevators. I mean, who in the hell, what's an elevator? You know, well, he, he didn't, un- he unlocked the elevators, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, the rudder is... Uh, is took me a while to work yeah. out that was in the tail. Yes, that's. Yes. I did recover the, on that. The rudder, the rudder is relatively important when you're flying an aircraft. Yes. So, um, what? Are, okay. So, if they're the things that you know kind of make it work, actually, oh, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on what you think could make that a better story. Because there's one thing that springs to mind for me, and that is, I think you could make a shorter version of that story. I agree. Yep. You don't need to tell all the ins and outs of that because really, at the end of the day, they have a competition. The aircraft smashes, you know, crashes, crashes and burns, and, you know, they try something new and it succeeds. I mean, that's essentially the story. Well, there's also the important bit about the fact that it was pilot error. Yes, right. Yeah, so it was complicated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think, yeah, making it shorter, I think it would have more punch. And it's like most stories are almost infinitely compressible and expandable. Yeah. Indeed. And so it depends on the amount of time you've got, you know, the extent to which the audience are interested in, you know, for example, I'm quite interested and I want to hear all the details, right? Yeah, right. Um, and so I totally didn't mind the length of the story. Yeah. Again, it depends on how much time, who the audience is, how long you've got. But there is definitely a, uh, there's the opportunity to tell that in a 90 second version. I think so. Definitely. Because I think my version would have been a four or five minute version. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, where, what about where we tell it? What's the situations where we might uh, give this story a run? Well, I guess there's the situation in which Atul Gawande told it in the first place, which was making the case for checklists. Well, that's right. Yeah, okay, so if you're, you're trying to, you know, sort of get your team to adopt, you know, some basic checklists to get things done, uh, maybe that's a story you could tell, right? Yeah, and, and I mean... I- you could also perhaps extend it to process where you're trying to get a process in place. Right. Um, and people are resisting. Oh, no, no, just we, we know how to do this. We don't yeah, need a process. We're experts in this yeah. space. <laughs> so, But that's the key thing. That guy, Ployer Hill, he was an expert. Oh, yeah. He was the very best, right? But he still couldn't get his head around uh, just reminding him of all the things he had to do. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. I agree. That's definitely one of those things. I think for me, I, I like the idea of, Sometimes we love to say that the, the small things can make a big difference and this is just a story that backs up that point. We're often trying to help people design interventions to have uh, an impact in culture change in an organisation. And one of the principles that we're you know, invariably trying to get across to the people designing things is not overcomplicated. Oh yeah, we love to come up with, in fact, you know what, we love to come up with really complex, big things that other people should do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're trying to flip it on the head and sort of say, hey, now let's come up with small things, simple things that you could do, right? And this is kind of uh, a good story that illustrates that. Yeah, yeah. Be very, very useful in trying to get people in the right mindset for thinking about the action that they're going to take to, uh, you know, to change the culture or to increase diversity and inclusion or... Yeah, 
whatever issue. Indeed. So for me, one of the ways that you could use this story really effectively is what we call an influence story. Because there's many situations where great ideas wither on the vine even though they're great ideas because people don't believe in them and ideas get written off. Yeah. You know, there's one mishap and people go, nope, that idea won't work. And uh, so, and people get this really, it is hard to change people's minds when they've got, when they form that story, when they're telling themselves that story. The 299 is too complex to fly. Yeah. So let's forget it. Let's forget it. And there's many situations like this in a business environment where people do have their minds set against an idea. You know, maybe because you know we or you know partnering won't work. You know, we tried partnering uh, two years ago with Acme and it didn't work. Yeah, exactly. And you can't tell them they're wrong. So yeah, anyway, part of the influence story pattern is you have an example that illustrates that there's another way of thinking about this. And so uh, if there's a situation where an idea has been written off, you can go look. I understand that you, you know we tried this and it didn't work in the past, and you, you know, many of you are thinking this won't work. But let me tell you what happened in 1935. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And so they found a very simple solution that turned that complete failure into an incredible, a historic success. Yes. So maybe we should be thinking about what can we do? Absolutely. You know, I was just thinking, you still have to match the story to the culture of the organisation. So, you know, if you're in, there'll be some organisations that that a, a story about Boeing bombers is not going to fly. Yeah, I'm I thinking say. if you're in Greenpeace, that's not going to fly. Well, that's right. So exactly. So you got to you got to match this story type to the the people that you're sharing that story with. Yeah, and that's a great uh, a, a lesson, I guess, is that a, a really effective story in one context might have very little effect, or in fact, the opposite to what you intended in a different context. Exactly. And it's one of the tests that you need to apply when you're when you're practicing is will this story make the impact I want in this context? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, I think that pretty well wraps up. We've got to give it a bit of a rating. This is what we yeah. love to do. So um, I told the story. So I guess you get to I'm, give a I'm, crack I'm, at it. So uh, it's not just my Air Force background that's causing me. I'm going to give this an eight because I think it's an incredibly versatile story that can be used really effectively and simply to make that very important point. So I think it's a powerful story that makes a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm going to give it an eight too because I think it's one of those ones that can be used. It's, it's a really useful, versatile story. Wow. Is, did we actually agree on something there? <laughs> Um, All right. Well, so with that, now to the special offer that Sean mentioned. So we've got the story today was being about the value of checklists. We've actually produced what we call the quick guide to story. It's a one page. It's kind of like a checklist, but we've designed this to give people a very quick overview of some of the key story patterns. And we talked today about the influence story pattern. We've talked about the connection story pattern in the past and the clarity story. Um, So this quick guide to story, very, very useful resource. And it's yours simply by sending us an email at people at anecdote.com. Yes. Uh, or making a comment on the blog page on our website. So www.anecdote.com forward slash blog. Fantastic. That's right. I think you'll be able to use that well. Well, I think we'll wrap it up. So uh, thanks very much for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. And of course, tune in next week. We'll have another episode for you on how to put stories to work. Mm-hmm.